Good evening. More violence in Jerusalem, a security meeting to drum up more weapons for Ukraine. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene faces an attempt to disqualify her as an insurrectionist and mass mandates in labor. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, April 22nd, 2022. Israeli police stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam today. The United Nations expressed deep concern at the unrest and the Palestinian Red Crescent said 57 were wounded. The clash has come after a month of deadly violence as the Jewish festival of Passover overlaps with the holy Muslim fasting month of Ramadan. The violence has sparked international fears of conflict. A year since similar unrest led to an 11-day war between Israel and militants in Gaza. Police fired tear gas and rubber-tipped bullets at Palestinian youths who were throwing stones and later used drones to spray tear gas from the air. That's what the Israelis did, according to a photographer at the scene. More than 200 people, mostly Palestinians, have been hurt in clashes in and around Al-Aqsa in the past week. Many Palestinians have been outraged by massive Israeli police deployment and repeated visits by Jews to the holy site. By longstanding convention, Jews are allowed to visit under certain conditions, but aren't allowed to pray there. Today, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights demanded an investigation of the Israeli police actions. And the United States Defense Department is organizing a meeting for next week in Germany to discuss long-term plans for providing Ukraine with defense assistance in its war with Russia. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says the Ukraine Defense Consultative Group will meet at Ramstein Air Force Base on April 26th to hear the latest battlefield assessment of the Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine and energizing the defense industrial base. John Kirby is spokesperson for the Pentagon. About 40 or so other nations were invited to attend. Invitations are still, RSVPs are still coming in, but I can tell you that more than 20 of the invited nations have agreed to come. So we're looking forward to that meeting. As we get closer to it, we'll certainly have more detail about it. Also announced today was an additional $800 million in security assistance to Ukraine. This is the eighth drawdown, that's their term for it, security assistance package aimed at Ukraine, including included in this package are 72 155-millimeter howitzers, 144,000 artillery rounds for those howitzers, 72 tactical vehicles to tow the howitzers, and more than 121 Phoenix Ghost Tactical Unnamed Aerial Systems. Those are basically kamikaze uh, drones that are used to uh, explode themselves against tanks, artillery, and soldiers, and an array of field equipment and spare parts. In more news from Ukraine, a Russian general said today that Moscow wants to take full control over southern Ukraine. In a statement in response, Ukraine said that gave the lie to Russia's previous assertions that it had no territorial ambitions. The deputy commander of Russia's central military district was quoted by Russian state news agencies as saying full control over southern Ukraine would give it access to Transnistria, a breakaway Russian-occupied part of Moldova in the west. That would cut off Ukraine's entire coastline and mean Russian forces pushing hundreds of miles west beyond current lines past the major Ukrainian coastal cities of Mykolaiv and Odessa. They would have to go past Mykolaiv and Odessa, which are currently still in Ukrainian hands. Moscow says it is conducting a special military operation 
to, demil- to demilitarize Ukraine and liberate its population for what it calls dangerous nationalists. Ukraine and its Western allies call Russia's invasion an unjustified war of aggression. And United States Drug Enforcement Administration agents have extradited the Honduran former president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, to New York, where he will face federal drug trafficking and weapons charges. Honduran National Police delivered a handcuffed Hernandez to DE agents at the Tegucigalpa airport just over two months after he was arrested outside his home. Hernandez, 53, left office on January 27th after two terms as president. Prosecutors from the Southern District of New York have accused him of accepting millions of dollars in bribes from violent drug traffickers in exchange for protection from law enforcement. Considered one of Washington's top allies in the region during his first term, garnering praise from U.S. officials, including then-Vice President Joe Biden. But the right-wing president fell out of favor with Democrats following his questionable 2017 re-election and mounting drug trafficking allegations after the arrest of his brother, the former legislator Juan Antonio Tony Hernandez, on the same charges in 2018. Tony Hernandez was later convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking today. Juan Orlando Hernandez, the former president of Honduras, was extradited to the United States to face federal charges. Hernandez is charged with participating in a corrupt and violent drug trafficking conspiracy to facilitate the importation of tons of cocaine into the United States from 2004 to 2022. As is charged in the indictment, Hernandez abused his position as president of Honduras from 2014 through 2022 to operate the country as a narco state. Hernandez is alleged to have received millions of dollars from multiple drug trafficking organizations, including from the former leader of the Sinaloa cartel known as El Chapo. In return, drug traffickers in Honduras were allowed to operate with virtual impunity. And that is Merrick Garland speaking today about the extradition of the former president of Honduras, who was quite a darling of the U.S. government during most of his time in office, which he used a lot of that time to attack the left and popular organizations in Honduras that included uh, the existence of uh, death squads and assassinations of political activists. President Biden shunned Hernandez upon taking office last year, but has since embraced the new Honduran president, the center-left Xiomara Castro, who was elected by a landslide in November in a vote considered a referendum on the eight scandal-plagued years of the Hernandez administration. And here in the United States, there's audio tape showing that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy privately said he'd urge President Donald Trump to resign over the January 6th Capitol riot, despite his public support for the ex-president's claim the election was stolen from him in 2020. Today, President Biden weighed in on the tape. This ain't your father's Republican Party. Not a joke. All you got to do is look what has been played this morning about the tape that was released anyway. You know, but all all kidding aside, this is a MAGA party now. It's, you know, you got the the senator from Texas and others. These these guys are a different breed of cat. They're not like what I served with for so many years. And the people who know better are afraid to act correctly because they know they'll be primary. I've had, I won't mention any, I promised I never would and I won't, but up to six come to me and say, Joe, I want to be with you on such and such, but I can't. I'll be primary. I'll lose my race. I'll lose my race. 
So, folks, we're gonna, this is going to start to change. And that's President Biden today. New York Times reporters Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin release audio tapes of phone calls they obtained in which McCarthy was recorded slamming Trump following the Capitol riot last year and telling Republican lawmakers that he would ask Trump to resign. And another Trump supporter in Congress, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, a public supporter of the QAnon conspiracy that claims Democrats are involved in a secret child sex ring, a theory revisited as a slur against Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Jackson Brown during her confirmation hearings. Ketanji Brown Jackson, pardon me, is facing scrutiny and an attempt to kick her off the upcoming Georgia primary battle as an insurrectionist, a Civil War era charge that can disqualify a candidate. Today, Marjorie Taylor Greene was in an Atlanta courtroom answering the allegations. Ms. Green, this is um, a tweet that we talked about a little bit earlier, just a quick question on it. Um, you issued this on um, December 19, 2020, correct? I tweeted an article that had the details of the dates and times. Right. And also included President Trump's statements that he expected the demonstrations on January 6th to be wild, right? I don't think that's what my tweet was about. Okay, well, but you see that the article says Trump colon supporters should join, quote, wild protests in D.C. on January 6th. I don't remember tweeting that specifically for what you're saying. Those are your words. No, I'm, Those re- aren't mine. I'm actually reading from what's on the... You're speculating on why I tweeted that, but I don't remember tweeting it for that specific reason. Ms. Green, I'm just asking questions. I'm just answering. <laughs> <laughs> and in your tweet, you mentioned earlier that um, your words, join the hashtag March for Trump in D.C. on January 6th to fight for Trump, that you were urging people to come to Washington for a peaceful demonstration, right? Peaceful demonstration, right. absolutely. Yeah, that word peaceful is nowhere in this tweet, right? Um, well, you know, like... Is the word peaceful in there, Ms. Green? It does not say peaceful That's right my there. question. But Thank you're you. asking me, and I said for peaceful demonstration, just like people have the right to do in their First Amendment. I, I'm asking... You didn't, there's not a secret code in there that's supposed to be peaceful, right? Well, I never mean anything for violence. I don't support violence of any kind, and I've said it over and over again. So I, I'm telling you... You just didn't say it on this occasion, did you? I never mean anything for violence. All of my words never, ever mean anything for violence. And that is Marjorie Taylor Greene earlier today. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit seek to derail Greene's reelection bid under a clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution that disqualifies from public office anyone who is engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies of the Constitution. Their lawyers allege Greene repeatedly advocated for political violence up to and including her encouragement of the insurrectionists on January 6th. Greene's defense team has argued the lawsuit is fundamentally anti-democratic and that Greene has denounced the violence in the events of January 6th. And more national news. Well, maybe I should add that you're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In more national news, Philadelphia has lifted its indoor mask mandate. City health officials said today that abruptly reverses course just days after people in the city had to start wearing masks again amid a sharp increase in infections. In an announcement, the Department of Public Health of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, said residents and visitors are strongly encouraged but not required. 
to wear a mask in indoor public spaces. The Board of Health voted yesterday to rescind the mandate, according to the Health Department, which released a statement that cited decreasing hospitalizations and leveling of case counts. Dr. Cheryl Bedigole is uh, Philadelphia's health commissioner. She had this to say. And I had said when I announced this that if we didn't see hospitalizations rising, that we needed to rethink this and that we shouldn't have a mandate in that case. So that's what we're doing today. It is a very short span of time because that's the time we needed to see what was going to happen next. We didn't want to miss the chance to interrupt a serious wave. But with hospitalizations coming down, we feel comfortable saying, you know, this is not a free-for-all, take off your masks. This is a we're going to strongly recommend this rather than require it because that is going to work in Philadelphia right now. I, I would disagree that it's been confusing. I think that most Philadelphians have understood that there was a mask mandate and why. Part of our ability to get people to listen when they need to is to tell people when things are getting better as well and not to not to be more restrictive than we have to. The health commissioner of Philadelphia, Dr. Cheryl Bedigole, Bedigole told the Board of Health at a public meeting yesterday that or last night that hospitalizations unexpectedly gone down 25 percent in a matter of days. But WBAI's labor reporter Bob Henley says that dropping mass mandates in recent days uh, is not just about daily COVID statistics, but really about how labor is viewed and treated in America. In New York City MTA, the transit bus line and that entire system lost 171 individuals, over 100 of them from the TWU Local 100. That's just in New York City alone. I personally have written stories about people all over the country that went to work, served the society at large, and then succumbed to an occupational exposure as a consequence of COVID. So even right now, the federal government does not have a tally or registry of who those people are. 23 million people are having long-term consequences, and 1 million individuals have been knocked out of the workforce as a consequence of lingering symptoms. We did have balkanized response. Rather than the states and regions cooperating, cynically, the Trump administration divided the nation and then pitted red states against blue states. And the idea was that, first of all, they denied the seriousness of the disease. And it's very important to understand that initially workers, uh, the TWU workers, this is going back to the very beginning, were wearing masks because they were up on current events. They knew about the risk they faced. They knew they were in a healthy environment. And yet they were told by supervisors that they'd be written up because it didn't match, it wasn't part of the uniform, and they would scare the public. I don't want to let that go by. You said that it would scare the people. They were actually, and tell people that the TWU 100, what union is that? Sure, so TWU, Transportation Worker um, uh, Union, makes up uh, the bulk. It's the largest workforce, some 40,000 of the people that run the uh, the uh, MTA buses and subways. And they're the frontline workers, and they're the ones that were the most exposed. They paid a very heavy price. There's incidents of long-haul COVID in that population. The reality is that prior to COVID, they were working in an unhealthy air, particularly in the subway and in diesel uh, bus environments. We do know that these occupational and chronic exposures, people should have probably been wearing masks all along. But COVID has uh, really highlighted the inadequacy of our HVA systems in general. I mean, that's the other thing, too, here, delineate between what the, the need for workers to protect themselves. 
Individuals can make choices for themselves, but it has a consequence for people that are compelled to work there by definition of their job. And that's what we've seen here is a really a lack, a, a, a reckless disregard for the occupational health issues. This all traces back to the Koch brothers and other uh, dark money groups that have been pouring money into the government to get them to change their position for political reasons. This is very analogous to the situation that first responders in the lower Manhattan community faced after 9-11. We lived this. This is part of our lived experience. Right after 9-11, the EPA, under leadership of Chrissy Todd Women, Mayor Giuliani was mayor. The imperative was not to uh, slow down opening up Wall Street. The idea was that we had to show those terrorists. And so they said the air was safe to breathe. At point of fact, subsequently, it was learned the inspector general from the EPA showed that the EPA lied and withheld critical information about the nature of the air quality. We now know more people have died as a result of the occupational exposure than they died in the day of the attack. We know that close to 300 firefighters, very close to the number of 343 have passed as a result of the environmental toxins that were there. Isn't it the duty of workers and citizens to, uh, I mean, during that was the argument for people who were exposed to radiation during World War II. It's wartime. Soldiers are out there fighting. Saving our economy is worth a few lives. We did hear that argument, and this has been the problem. It's in my book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Its Course of History of Choosing Profits Over People? Consistently, this has been what we have done, is we have put money and the amassing of wealth above um, human life. And as a consequence, we now see what we get for that. It's no accident that life expectancy declined for three years in a row leading up to this pandemic. We have let public health and indeed the general health care system, because it's rationed based on the ability to pay, we let our public health decline and then we see the results of this pandemic. It's not that we could avoid it entirely, but the way that it has gone on and the many different variants, I think we have to look at the fact it's our inability to act in a cohesive and collective manner that's resulted in this. And as Bob Henley, WBAI's labor reporter, Last night on Radio Unnameable, WBAI hosted Patooch Gilbert, who's a leader of the Acoma Pueblo Natural Resources Office, the community known as the oldest continually inhabited village in North America. That means well over 1,000 years, says COVID impacted his Pueblo and native people. And while he says New Mexico did a good job, there was opposition to indigenous peoples taking control of their health needs in other parts of the country. Indigenous communities throughout the world of course, here in New Mexico, too, were more severely affected, like the Navajo Nation, you know, had numerous illnesses. Uh, they just don't have water. And like here at Acoma, the population on reservation population is probably close to 3,500. We had, I think, maybe about 30 deaths. Hundreds of people got affected. So many people just contracted it. We were able to, the, the tribe, you know, controls its land's base by closing off entrance into our land. Mm. So our whole community was almost locked down. Did yeah. the state government, the New Mexican state government, were they hostile oh, yeah. or supportive? They were, very, they were very, all very helpful. The yeah. state of New Mexico, uh, the U.S. government, the hospitals that are provided mm. by the United States government all provided uh, vaccines. The reason I mention that is because I was did an interview sometime back with uh, Chase Iron Eyes of uh, Pine Ridge and the Lakota people in South Dakota, and he 
was uh, describing to me just the hostile relationship they have with the governor there, Christy Nome, I think her name is a Trump Republican, and uh, who is actually sending, threatening to send state troopers to take down the barricades that they put to prevent people from driving into the into the reservation. Yeah, that that's very very unfortunate. Uh, the lack of, uh, I think, respect, the lack of cooperation, and collaboration. The government, uh, we're all here together, and we all want to live peacefully together and work together in survival, surviving. But yeah, you get those kinds of. Uh, conflicts. Tush Gilbert, he'll be um, part of an event that's going to be available live on the internet through Eventbrite. And I have a, I would go to Eventbrite and look up colonization, land and decolonization, indigenous perspectives towards sovereignty and self-determination. They summarize it as being four leading voices in the global indigenous movement who share their vision towards sovereignty and self-determination from their respective native occupied territories. It's a side event, part of the 2022 session of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, which is occurring next week. Indigenous peoples, business autonomy, and the human rights principles of due diligence, including free, prior, and informed consent. Panelists include Patouche, who we just heard, Patouche Gilbert of the Acoma Pueblo, New Mexico, on the topic of indigenous self-determination under U.S. colonialism. Ron Tremblay, who is a, a grand chief of, uh, I won't even try and name the group, on the topic of restoring traditional forms of governance, Daniel Flores, the Ascension, a Maya Indian on U.S. intervention in Central America, nation building and indigenous identity in post-war El Salvador. And Jennifer Marley of the Zia Pueblo, New Mexico, a member of the group called the Red Nation. And, uh, this will be Wednesday, April 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. And I would register, is free, you can register through Eventbrite, colonization, land, and decolonization. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing the World Bank and IMF yesterday stated that the war in his country would severely affect food access throughout the world. Started sowing in the fields as much as we can, but nobody in the world can be sure that we'll be able to guarantee food security as long as this war is going on. To stop the war now and to liberate our territory from the Russian invaders is the only secure way to stop the development of a food crisis. Russian military are aimed at destroying all objects in Ukraine that can serve as an economic base for life. That includes railroad uh, stations, food warehouses, oil refineries, etc. At this time, we need up to 7 billion US dollars each month to make up for the economic losses. And we will need hundreds of billions of dollars to rebuild all this later. The uh, president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's war has crossed the Atlantic and is Plop down right here on the Lower East Side, the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which is home to one of the largest Ukrainian communities in the United States. Council member Carlina Rivera praised the plan today by the city to provide $2 million to help the refugees, about 100,000 refugees who are expected to come to the United States, according to the president. Uh, they'll be coming, many of them, to Manhattan and to New York City, and many of them will wind up on the Lower East Side. This is Rivera speaking on the steps of City Hall. 
If you walk the streets of the East Village, you will see it is flooded with Ukrainian flags hanging in shop windows and from fire escapes. And neighbors greet each other with the cheer and the promise of glory to Ukraine. And just as the city has welcomed Ukrainian refugees with arms wide in the past, we do so again now. We have heard from our neighbors and allies and what is needed. We need legal services and social services for the entire family, case management service and mental health support all in a culturally humble way. This is a very big investment that we announced today. It's going to be vital to our efforts to ensure that every Ukrainian community has come, who has come to New York or will come to New York, will be met with support, service and care. That is what New Yorkers do. We take care of each other. I'm so grateful for this investment in our Ukrainian communities here in New York. And for them, we keep fighting. Glory to Ukraine. Slava Ukraini. And that is uh, the council person for the Lower East Side, Carlina Rivera. But not everyone in her district is happy with uh, some of the things that council member Rivera has done. A week ago, workers sawed down dozens of cherry trees that were just beginning to enter bloom uh, along East River Park and Corlier's Park, Corlier's Hook Park, which are being demolished for a $1.5 billion flood control project that was extremely controversial in the neighborhood and was basically forced down the throats of many who had uh, really championed another attempt, another type of plan that would more uh, involve the community more in doing something that would use more modern, environmentally friendly methods rather than large-scale construction of uh, dams and, and levees, which is the plan they eventually uh, force over the backs of the community. People were there at the site when the trees were being ripped down, and uh, Reverend Billy uh, had this to say. A thank you to the cherry trees at Corlear's Hook in the East River Park, slaughtered, cut down for luxury towers or something or other, it's not clear why, in just the last few days. Beautiful cherry trees in bloom. Beautiful pink and purple flowers chainsawed by our city. This is happening all the time. We're in a death spasm. We're in a killing habit. And you and I, we know we have to assign to ourselves a change in how we're living our lives. Our ordinary everyday life must be changed. We must scare ourselves now. Do the unexpected. Look to the earth to guide us. Evolution is happening at a tremendous pace right now in something called the sixth extinction. Accelerating all around us. The sixth extinction. Hundreds of species disappearing every week. Antarctica, 70 degrees Fahrenheit above the average. The jet streams, the big ocean currents shifting, stopping, starting. We're in an apocalypse right now. And the best thing we can do is to give it up to the earth. To learn from the earth. To be grateful to the earth. To learn the earth's language. Those of us who happen to be, God help us, European Americans, 
We haven't known how to listen to the earth for many centuries. Now's a good time to get that language square. Start learning. Somebody give me the earth hallelujah. Earth hallelujah. Are we going to listen to the earth? Are we going to stop poisoning the earth? Stop. Stop poisoning. Stop. Stop poisoning. And that was Reverend Billy last week. The city says the Corlier's Hook trees had to be felled so that the Corlier's Hook footbridge to East River Park be rebuilt to support vehicles so that new drainage could be installed. Opponents, however, favored a previous more low-impact resiliency plan for all of East River Park that didn't require destroying the existing waterfront parkland and would have instead just created a berm along the FDR Drive to contain the floodwaters. And that's some of the news for Friday, April 22nd, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.